So I'm pleased to say again that today we have uh, Professor Mark Davenport joining us on our series of EPIPs. Um, and this time we're going to talk about um, CPAMs, but specifically looking at the surgical debate regarding these. Um, Professor Mark Davenport is a consultant neonatal and pediatric surgeon at King's College Hospital. He is a past president of the British Association of Pediatric Surgeons um, and has also been, is a current examiner, and he also has a special interest in liver and thoracic surgery. Um, so a couple of years ago, when it was the BAPS Congress, there was a, a very good debate uh, looking specifically at CPAMs and in particular looking at the asymptomatic cases and how we manage these in the UK. Um, so what I thought we would do first is just to clarify a little bit about the nomenclature, because again, lots of times we hear about cystic lung lesions and CCAMs and CPAMs. And so I thought that we could discuss these first. And then we can go on to discuss the management of these lesions. So welcome, Professor Davenport. Okay, fabulous. Um, okay, so we start with our ABC, really, aren't we? Our CPAM. Um, and that's just an umbrella term for everything. So if it's congenital, it's present at the time of birth, and it's characterised as parenchymal abnormality, then it will, it will be a CPAM. Uh, if we look underneath the umbrella, however... To the actual diseases, the pathologies that these things are, it probably gives you a better understanding of their natural history. So the main one uh, that sort of uh, that we see uh, is CCAM, CCAM, uh, congenital cystic adenomatoid malformation, and that sort of uh, describes the macrocystic feature that's most obvious, which is cysts, uh, and also the histological elements to it as well, the adenomatoid features. And CCAMs themselves can be subdivided according to a modified Stocker classification. Um, and Stocker was an interesting man. He was a, he was a colonel, or still is a colonel, in the uh, American Air Force, I think it was. And uh, he collected in the 19, I'll say 1980s, a series of resected specimens of these CCAMs and split them into three different types based upon their macroscopic and histological features. So we had uh, type 1, which were very obviously cystic. So the cysts were bigger than two centimetres. And uh, uh, that was the dominant features. Type 2 is when they had multiple cysts, but the cysts themselves were smaller. And type 3 was when the actual lesions themselves was more solid, so they're relatively microcystic. Now, the solid ones didn't do well at all, but those were the least common. So practically what we see is, is type 1s and type 2. Now, as time went on, uh, pathologists got together and identified two more um, uh, conditions which they believed to be part of the family, the same family. Instead of changing the numbers of the stock classification, they added uh, the, these two types onto either end. So now we've got a type zero and a type four. So five different types pathologically in all. But as I say, fundamentally, it's the two type one and type two that you will probably be seeing or asked about. So that's CCAMs. Now, the other distinct uh, part of this parenchymal abnormality spectrum uh, is a thing that's been known as sequestration. 
so these aren't characterized by cysts. These are solid lesions. And you can divide these into two types. Uh, extralobar and intralobar. Uh, many people don't think the intralobar ones even exist. They're just solid postnatal developments. But the extralobar ones certainly do. And they're, they're present at the time of birth. They very much have their own separate investiture, investiture of pleura. So they're distinct from the actual lung. And they've also uh, got their separate blood supply. So they get a typically very big arterial input direct from the thoracic aorta or the abdominal aorta, uh, feeding these solid lesions. And then they drain their venous drainage back into the heart. They, because they're solid, or probably the other way around, they have no bronchial connection, uh, which is why they're solid. Uh, but histologically, they are formed of lung parenchyma. So we've got sequestrations and we've got secants. And then just to confuse you even more, we've got a crossover group, which we call hybrids. Now, hybrids have only relatively recently been recognised as an entity. It's difficult to sort of define them. The one thing that does define them is they've got elements of both those kind of pathologists. So some look to all intents and purposes as regular secans, but yet have got a systemic blood supply. Uh, in others, uh, in other sequestrations, they've got much more of the features histologically of secans. So there are some which are hybrid, they're crossing over. Uh, the, the sort of, uh, I think the third major uh, pathological entity that we should be looking for are characterized more as emphysema. Now, uh, lobar emphysema, which, is, which is, has been known about for several uh, decades, may not be picked up antenatally. Uh, most of them present postnatally as hyperinflated lobes. Uh, and therefore, they cause acute respiratory distress. Uh, and therefore, they, they tend to require urgent surgery. But they, they're uncommon. What's been increasingly recognised is that there might be a segmental emphysema which can be picked up antenatally uh, and can cause the same kind of problems that you would see with CCAPs, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, so these are congenital segmental emphysemas. Uh, the Americans tend to call these bronchial atresias, but it's the same kind of disease, okay? same kind of disease. So uh, all of these sit under the umbrella and our task as surgeons is to try and work out which is which or more appropriately, which should we take out? Okay, um, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, so let's take you straight into an hour clinical problem. So you are attending your fetal medicine clinic and you have a couple, they've been diagnosed with a cystic lung lesion on their 20 week anomaly scan. So at this stage, what further information would you like and what would you say to the, the couple? Okay, so uh, most of the, the uh, aforementioned lesions are isolated abnormalities. So they don't really have an association with cardiac abnormalities. They certainly don't really have an association with uh, GI pathology. So they will look, the fetal medicine guys will look um, and uh, enable that kind of information to be delivered to the parents. Uh, and if there's no other uh, signs of uh, a fetal distress or usually about the 20 week scan, uh, any change in mediastinal uh, movement or development of uh, pleural effusion or, or hydrops, uh, then 
uh, most uh, of these can easily go to term without any real problem at all. For the 10% or so where the lesions themselves are big, they can cause problems during antenatal uh, life uh, and even death of the baby. And for those, then you may be considering some kind of intervention. What would you say is, so you've sort of seen this couple, they said they've taken your explanation, but they want to know what's going to happen sort of in terms of the natural history. Um, would you expect these to just regress? Uh, it is said that 5% of these kind of abnormalities can regress. Now, you've got to be very careful. Most of that data came from earlier studies which didn't really investigate the postnatal natural history of these babies or in any great detail. So they did a chest x-ray, it was normal, therefore they regressed. If you actually do intensive investigations using CT scans, that's very uncommon. So uh, awaiting spontaneous evolution is, is probably not the best thing to, to recommend to the parents. One would be upfront and say that the probability is there is something in the chest and it may well come to surgery. Now, uh, as I say, the fetal medicine people's uh, first and major involvement of these is to initiate a program of serial ultrasound. And for about 20 weeks or so, what they're looking for is the onset of problems in the, in the fetus. And uh, towards the latter end of the, of the second trimester, that's when you start to get, if you are going to get, uh, problems related to uh, intrathoracic uh, mass uh, issues uh, such as high drops. Now as I say there, there are things that one can do for those babies uh, but it all depends on the, uh, the pathology of the actual intrathoracic mass. So here we now come to a second classification which is actually distinct from Stocker. Stocker if you remember was a histological postnatal post-resection classification. Uh, in the antenatal life uh, the classification that's used is an Adzig classification. That's named after Scott Adzig uh, from his work in uh, San Francisco in CHOP. And what they did there was simply divide them on the basis of size of cyst. So at the fetal level, what they were looking for is uh, something they termed macrocysts, and uh, something they termed microcysts. And again, I think it's millimetres that is the distinguishing factor here. Now, if you've got a macrocystic lesion causing uh, fetal distress, you can actually do something to it antenatally. And typically what you're aiming to do uh, is drain the intrathoracic cystic lesion. Uh, and you can, you can put a needle into it. This is obviously transuterine. Uh, or you can actually put a, uh, a pigtail catheter into the uh, cyst itself, draining it and leave it inside the uterus. So these would be called thoracoamniotic shunts. And for large cystic lesions causing fetal distress, then the thoracoamniotic shunt is, can be a lifesaver uh, and certainly get the baby to turn. Now for the microcystic lesions, the therapy is, is less, uh, less predictable and less uh, obvious. But nowadays, uh, uh, a trial of steroids uh, can be given uh, in order to try and manipulate the microcystic lesions, again, to try and uh, enable these babies to be delivered. Once they're delivered, then you're obviously in the province of the surgeons. Uh, but our, 
our only real strategy is to take them out. Okay. Are there any other specific prognostic features or measurements that you might identify antenatally? Uh, so there is a sort of equivalent, the CHOP people mm-hmm. uh, looked at an awful lot of their series, made measurements uh, and used an analogous uh, index. The analogous index was the lung-to-head ratio that we use in diaphragmatic hernia. Uh, and they've created one for the kind of CPAN lesions you, that you see antenatally. Um, but we tend not to use this in the UK. Okay. Um and then moving on to a little bit about when the couples say to you in terms of the timing, mode and the place of delivery, what would you comment for that? So <coughs> if uh, you, you manage, the majority do have an uneventful pregnancy, uh, then towards the latter end of the pregnancy, the fetal medicine guys can liaise uh, with paediatric surgeons who should be there counselling uh, these prospective parents. Uh, and making a decision on where they can be delivered. So if the lesions themselves are actually quite small, then there's no real problem about them delivering locally, as long as they embark upon a postnatal surveillance programme to try and identify what the actual lesion is after birth. For those where, well, certainly the, the ones that have had fetal intervention, or the ones that are large, have got some degree of significant metastolic shift, they will be, need to be delivered in centres who have got appropriate resuscitation skills, uh, neonatal medical uh, and respiratory uh, elements within them, and also easy access to a surgeon. Because uh, commonly, those kind of uh, lesions are going to be removed in the first week of life. And really, you don't want to deliver a baby and then shift it to some other unit. Uh, you should be actually transporting these babies in utero if, in utero if necessary to the unit that can offer a full range of services. Okay. And then I guess this is going to now lead on to the the next bit of the conversation, which is that um, let's say the baby is born, they're born at term, they are asymptomatic. And this is, I believe, where the debate really comes in. So we have have discussed the babies, or we all all know, yes, of course, if they're in respiratory distress, we would know what to do. But um, focusing on the controversy that they are asymptomatic, um, so what would your approach be in your unit? Okay, so uh, as I said, just to re-emphasise, those babies that have got significant long lesions, uh, if they're symptomatic, time of birth or shortly afterwards they need intervention absolutely no question shouldn't be waiting they should have early intervention in order uh, to e- effectively take away their problem and allow them to recover from it now that's not true of the majority the majority are asymptomatic asymptomatic completely uh, they will have potentially a normal chest x-ray so that's the first and really only investigation they actually physically need in the asymptomatic group in the first week of life. Uh, what we then offer for all the babies uh, is to return for a CT scan. So this is a contrast, IV contrast CT scan, and we'll say around about three months, four months. Now, most of them, the vast majority of one would hope, have not run into problems by that stage, so they're still asymptomatic. And we can then make a decision on what we feel might be uh, the, the recommended course of action for these babies. Now, uh, at King's, we uh, certainly, there's no doubt we have adopted a much more aggressive approach to these babies than formerly, or indeed than many units up and down the land. So you go to some places, we'll mention no names, but Southampton comes to mind, 
where they, they will not, it will be very, very difficult to get any kind of resectional surgery uh, in any asymptomatic baby, no matter what the imaging looks like. Uh, so they will just simply follow you up. Uh, our approach uh, is to, to look at the imaging, the CT imaging, and make a decision. The majority of those that show obvious cystic lung disease, we will recommend excision. And we will try and do that excision in the asymptomatic cases before their first birthday. Uh, for some of them, uh, it may be obvious that there's really the lesions are trivial. A single subpleural cyst, uh, a little patch of solid material, a little bit of segmental atelectasis. And for those, we can simply say, well, that's not, we predict it's not going to cause you a problem. We will leave you alone. Now, typically, we would still retain contact with the, uh, the parents of the child and may even repeat the CT scan around about four or five years of age. Uh, and some of them do actually change. So the ones that I mentioned before with congenital segmental emphysema, some of those can evolve. So the, the emphysematous segment gets bigger or they could develop a mucosal, a bronchoseal, uh, and that can become symptomatic. So we've had to delay intervention in some of those babies. Uh, the rest of them, as I say, if we're, if we're not doing the resection, if we're not committing them to a, a second CT scan, uh, sometimes we would leave them alone completely. Okay. So in a, in a different series, we are going to explore the Southampton approach and as to why they choose to manage them conservatively. But why, why do you offer surgery to these parents? So the, uh, we uh, are in a big fetal medicine centre. So in the 1980s, when fetal ultrasounds were just getting going, uh, we started developing uh, an interest uh, in these antenatally detected ones. Now, initially... The only ones that they were detecting were the very big ones, the very symptomatic ones. So we got a special interest in those and they came to surgery. But increasingly with improved technology, they started to pick up a high proportion that were smaller, more subtle. And it became clear that we could actually afford to wait, but investigate them uh, and just leave them alone and see what actually happened. A proportion did develop complications. So I've got a very vivid recollection uh, of a child, actually with a sequestration, not a CCAM, uh, that was lost to follow-up and returned with a big empyema that threatened the kid's life at about the age of one. And then the people, the paediatricians in the local unit, the penny dropped, they looked back, it was very antenatally obvious, uh, and that was a very difficult operation to undergo, having gone through a, a fairly solid pleural cavity in order to take away this sequestration, which would have been very, very easy to excise had it not been for the empyema. So we, we did a literature survey. Uh, indeed, the first author was a gentleman called Mike Stanton. And he came to a very obvious conclusion, supporting the role of intervention in the asymptomatic ones. Obviously, he's, he's getting a little bit older now, perhaps early dementia, but he's changed his attitude. But when he did the survey of the literature uh, to about 2008, it was clear that there was a significant proportion that did develop complications within the first two years of life. And perhaps you could preempt it. Undoubtedly, we may well overtreat some. Uh, but as I say, that, that's, it's very difficult to sort those out. Cancer? Yeah. Shall we use the C word? Yep. Okay. So now it's there's no doubt that CCAM, not sequestrations, uh, is pre-malignant or can be pre-malignant. 
What you don't know is the proportion that have got this malignant tendency. Uh, some of them, uh, what is it called, stochotype 4, can overlap with pleuropulmonary blastomas. Uh, and those are big malignant cysts. Now, hopefully you won't be treating those uh, without intervention anyway, so it may just be a moot point for them. But there are other forms of malignancy that can come on in later life. Uh, we removed a, 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 a large, relatively solid uh, type 2 SECAM uh, in the first week of life in a baby last year. Uh, and histologically, it proved to have areas of mucinous and no carcinoma. That was, that was incidental, but the baby needed a resection anyway. Um, but you do get these things turning up. Uh, and that's always that's always in the background. It's never going to be a huge proportion of these babies, however. Uh, but again, it's, it's obviously a worry if you ever mention it in a conversation to a parent. Uh, so that's one of the things that perhaps drives us is to, well, reduce the worry. Okay. Um, so here at um, King's College Hospital, what would be your operative approach when undertaking one of these asymptomatic well children with a lesion? So... Uh, now, traditionally, we uh, I did open thoracotomies uh, for all these babies up until uh, the mid 2000s uh, when my colleague Selish Patel, uh, Niadi Ajay, uh, started developing the thoracoscopic uh, approach to them. And uh, obviously, the, the, the downside of a thoracotomy, an open thoracotomy, is the scar. Uh, we do a muscle sparing thoracotomy, so I don't think there's any functional. Uh, changes certainly by comparison to the old uh, muscle cutting operation that was performed um, and having been doing those kind of uh, operations now since the 19 early 1990s we haven't seen any real chest wall deformities as a result of the operation um, so some of them you can attribute it to the fact you've taken most of the lung out uh, but that's a different story so it's attractive to be able to offer a thoracoscopic resection uh, because at the end of the day, there is no real visible uh, uh, result from your surgery other than the fact you've taken an abnormal segment out. Um, so uh, for the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, we have uh, accrued a series of thoracoscopic resections, about 70 to 80 now, um, and a sort of trying to understand which is the better approaches to it in terms of which bit do you excise because there is an argument about do you take the whole lobe out or do you just take the segment out uh, we probably come down to lobectomies are uh, associated with less problems less complications rather than segmentectomies but that's just maybe okay and are there any key anatomical landmarks that you would say you need to identify, say, if you're doing a lobectomy? Uh, it's vital that, as you know, there's uh, uh, three on the right, two on the left, with a little lingula. So the major fissure is the key anatomical landmark. Um, and now most of the time the fissure is actually open. So at the base of the fissure, you should be able to see the... Uh, various uh, blood vessels are on the bronchi. Uh, if you're going from below to do a lower lobectomy, uh, the first thing that you actually should be controlling at least is the pulmonary vein. So this is the venous thing that uh, is within the uh, uh, the inferior pulmonary ligament 
and is, is, is away from the highland. That's quite a large vessel. Uh, and that needs to be at least uh, controlled before you're actually taking the load out. Uh, for all of these, again, before you're committing to lobectomy, you've got to make sure you're not damaging uh, the blood supply to the rest of the lobes that you're leaving in. So you've got to be absolutely secure in your anatomical appreciation before you commit yourself. You can do an awful lot of damage uh, to what you're proposing to leave in. And in a child who has walked into your ward and who is completely asymptomatic, you've got to be very conservative and got to be very careful. Uh, so that, that gives a whole new set of demands on your surgical precision. Okay. And then just lastly, to finish off, if you have had a successful procedure, um, what do you do for your long-term follow-up with these children? Yep. All the thoracotomies we've been following up uh, essentially for at least their first 10 years or so to adolescence. Again, trying to allay the issues, the long-term issues, perhaps related to rib abnormalities or chest wall deformity or scoliosis. Uh, as I say, we have not appreciated that in our cohort of series. In our cohort, um, those that, uh, that have been treated with segment ectomies, then there is possibly uh, a, a, a recurrence uh, epi uh, complication. Uh, and again, sometimes you may be doing uh, resections of not only one lobe, but also part of another lobe as well, because the disease crosses the fissure. Uh, and for those, again, we would, uh, we would do follow-up CT scans to try and determine whether there's been any kind of recurrent disease or not in those. Uh, we're unwilling to, to, uh, to discharge uh, most of our patients in the first few years after kind of this kind of surgery, though. Fantastic. Um, thank you very, very much again for um, this podcast. Um, and we look forward to having you again for some more in the future. Thank you very, very much. much. Thanks very much, Roger. Thank you.